Well, thank you so much for taking out the time to talk to me, Vivek. It's really nice to have you. Uh, absolutely, Minaj. It's a pleasure. Um, Vivek, since COVID-19 has set in, the ads on YouTube for um, brokerages um, and other um, investment bankers and different things has literally made it impossible to watch a YouTube video with peace of mind. <laughs> and yeah. everyone wants to um, invest. Everyone wants to know how it works. Um, I don't know. It's about the regulations that have eased or it's just the people's tendency to think more of investing opportunities at the reality once they're sitting at home. Um, so before we actually uh, get into uh, mechanics of how quantum investing works. Let's talk a little bit about basic investing works. Let's tell us sure. a little bit about what's long, what's short, and all these dreary terms. Yeah, yeah. well, I'll, I'll start at a high level for what the average investor probably should do. And I, I need to uh, mention that you know, nothing that I say is is meant as investment advice. It's not a recommendation to buy or sell any security. All the views are my own, not of any firm or organization that I'm a part of. Um, so, you know, if, if one is an average investor and you're wondering, hey, what should I do with my money, right? I, my advice is exactly the same as every other person in the field, which is buy a index ETF, broad-based, and, you know, hold until you retire, right? Don't trade in and out. Don't um, uh, try to find some winning stock somewhere. It's not that it is impossible to do so, but just know that you know you're you're trading against many other folks. You're trading against other retail investors. You're trading against other institutions. Um, you you might figure out something that other people haven't, and that has indeed happened. Um, but on average, uh, you're empirically retail investors happen to lose, right? That is just on average what has has been the case historically. Um, so, so the the best way to deal with that is just to buy uh, an index fund, an index ETF, and uh, sit on it until retirement. And many investors have done that. Many retail investors have moved uh, towards that model uh, from the the seventies to today. It's only very recently, with um, COVID nineteen, uh, people sitting at home, people wanting to sort of do something with their time, so to speak. Um, that there's been a lot more uh, uh, trading, um, uh, a lot more retail trading, that is. Um, but even then, it's still something like 20% of the market. I, it, it, it's not as if it's uh, become a dominant force in the market. Um, now, that out of the way, um, you know, when, when you hear about, let's say, long-short investing, and, and I, I think we can... Uh, Kind of go through each term that 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 kind of uh, uh, you're you're curious about it or you want to discuss. Um, so so when we think about long investing, that's just buying uh, securities, right? So that's just stuff that we're very used to. So long only investing, you're just buying. Um, if if you're let's say short only fund, which are relatively rare, um, what you would do is uh, you would only be shorting stocks. And what is shorting? That's where you borrow the shares from someone. You sell them, and then you hopefully you're hoping that the stock price falls so that you can buy it back at a lower price and then give the shares back to the person that lent it to you. Um, now, why would someone lend you the shares? Well, they would earn a little bit of an interest rate on, on it. So they would earn some money 
uh, you would pay them some money on it for, for borrowing those shares. Um, when you give the shares uh, uh, back, um, you're, you're hoping to have, have done so at a lower price, bought it back at a lower price and made, made a profit there. Um, and then there's also long short investing, right? So th that's where you're going long and you're going short. You're basically trying to hedge out your bets and, and you think that one stock will outperform another. You don't necessarily have a view on the direction of the stocks in general. You just have a view that, you know, let's say Ford will outperform GM. So you, you go uh, long Ford, you short GM, and, and you hope that Ford goes up relative to GM. You don't necessarily care whether they go up, they, they both go up or they both go down. You just care that Ford outperforms GM. So, so that's long, short investing. Um, does all that make sense? Of course it does. Uh, what I find interesting in this context is that 90% of- uh, Minaj, I, I need to change headphones. I'm sorry. Okay. Give me a second. The, the, these headphones are just not, not doing it. Give me a sec. I'm, I'm going to get over your headphones. Sure. Sounds good. Let me make sure the sound is coming from here. Okay. Okay. All right. I, all right. I should be. Okay. So, sorry about that. No problem. Uh, so, what I find really interesting in um, the context of um, day trading that 90% of people who invest in day trading actually lose their money. And these are facts. Um, sure. There's no bypassing that. Um, still, the number of signups, if you look at um, the brokerages, um, and a part of it, I believe, it comes from the fact that you have the access to these tools on your cell phone. So you can install Fidelity, you can install Interactive Broker, you can install Binance and start doing that. Um, and this overconfidence in the ability to understand markets um, and to be able to make out um, like everyone else does, uh, probably the kind of snake oil merchandise that we talk about. Uh, so tell me, where, where is this optimi optim uh, you know, this optimistic view of being able to earn money without any experience coming from? Yeah, I mean, there's certainly a psychological aspect to this where uh, everyone assumes that they're above average, right? So, you know, the you know, every individual who's going in trading, they think, look, on average, I expect to earn excess returns, right? They're, they're, they they have the same mindset as someone buying a lottery ticket and imagining their, their probability of, of winning being higher than it actually is, right? I mean, the, 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 the view of, you know, having that sort of vacation beach home um, in, in one's mind, right? That, that can, can cause people to do, uh, uh, some irrational things and and to dream sort of b bigger than than reality um, uh, suggests that that one empirically should, right? So uh, where precisely the optimistic bias comes from, I, I think that's something that is better directed at a psychologist. But 
um, it's clear that the average investor does have that issue, right? And, and, you know, interestingly, I don't think that that's unique to um, retail investors. I suspect that's true of institutional investors. I suspect that's true of fund managers. Um, you know, interestingly, 90% of fund managers in large cap U.S. space, they underperform over any 10-year period. That only makes sense. Well, I mean, it could make sense in one of one of two uh, contexts. One is they're just hoodwinking people, right? They're, they, they know they're going to underperform, but they just try to convince their clients that, hey, look, I'm, I'm going to outperform. Um, I'm, I'm not that cynical. I'm sure some people are like that, but I'm not quite that cynical. I think they genuinely believe they're good and, and they're going to, um, to win on average. And that's in general why, you know, I, I like to choose areas where the institutional investors and mutual fund managers, so on and so forth, are on average winning, right? If you find a, a country like that, a market like that, then um, you should feel reasonably confident, right? The, then instead of needing to be the 95th percentile to earn excess returns, you could even theoretically be the 50th percentile to earn excess returns. And then every improvement you make on that is more excess returns. Um, so, you know, I, I think that should be the game, right? If, if, if one wants to, uh, find a, a, a place where, where you can earn excess returns, find a place where other people are earning them and, and, you know, other people like you, that is, um, and, and th those are the markets that are, are safest to play because it, it's better to just assume your average, right? That's, that's the. The, the good assumption when you're looking at the markets, it's, it's an adversarial game, you know, with no prior information, you know, I'm, I'm a, a draw from the average, uh, uh, dis average of the distribution. I think throughout the history of um, stock and investing, we've noticed there are only two methods to be able to find out if the company is as good as it says. Um, one is the technical analysis of how it's going, you know, checking out the paper rates, you know, applying different, um, tools to that, RSI, moving averages, Bollinger Bands, sure. and things like that. Um, and then we have fundamental analysis, which is the good old wise way of, you know, is this guy has, um, has he ever done uh, what he has um, ever said? Um, and where he's come from, who he is, who he knows, mm -hmm. you know, how long has he been in the business, is he reliable, and things like that. And when we talk about quant analysis, um, it's somewhere in the between, or let's say it's a new kid on the block. Now, um, it has also proved itself to be a formidable um, force to um, reckon with. And now that it's out there, it's not only staying with institutional investors, it's boiling over to real investors also. A lot of people who, who have some skill or some mathematical understanding, you know, they're getting into algorithms um, sure. and trying to automate their investing process. Tell us how quant investing um, is different from all previous investing um, ideas and what, what is the edge that it has over others? Yeah, so, so quant investing encompasses a wide variety of things. One uh, on the kind of simplest side is things like what, what's called smart beta. So that's where you get a particular factor exposure. And what that sort of means is you're sorting various stocks on characteristics. And some of those are fundamental, like book to market, um, like return on equity. Some might be technical, like momentum. And you buy the stocks with 
high values of those things and and you avoid stocks with with low values of those things. So that's on the simpler side. Um, interestingly, you know, if you look at the live results of smart beta funds, and there have been a couple of papers on this, um, they haven't been very good, right? So, so that side of quant investing, um, you know, I, I think there's still something there, but it's very simple, right? And and you would want to do that if you you wanted uh, a strategy that's just easy to understand and you you expect on average or in excess returns. Now, um, as you get more complex, um, there are certainly you know, empirically, you, you can see like, oh, these folks seem to be winning, right? So if you get into the high frequency trading market making side of quant investing, which is on the other extreme, right? So that's where it's just pure algorithmic uh, uh, trading. Um, and it's, you know, just technical signals working on a few seconds, um, maybe a few minutes um, down to a tick by tick, right? So, so each, uh, a single tick of, of a stock or a security. Um, that, uh, you know, that makes money, right? So, so you know, they, these are liquidity providers are also um, predicting markets at a love at a uh, frequency that they are indeed predictable. And there's a lot of trading coming from outside of that space, that is uninformed at that level, right? It, it's, you, you know, the, the trades that are coming from a retail investor or even from the average institution is not trying to predict stock prices over the next few seconds or minutes. And that means that the, the high frequency traders can kind of take advantage of those trades on that horizon. Um, so, so that side, you know, they make money um, on average. Then there's the in-between, right? And, and the in-between is where I live. So, so that's where you're using machine learning algorithms. Um, well, if, if you consider, uh, you know, it, it, it depends on, on what you, you consider machine learning, but, you know, uh, uh, linear ridge, gradient boosting, random forest, um, predicting returns on a monthly horizon, uh, using a mix of fundamental signals and technical signals, um, and using optimization to, to build portfolios out of that. So... The question is, look, empirically, is that successful or not? And the answer is, we don't know. It's, it's very difficult to like disentangle um, all, the, all the funds out there and say, oh, these are the guys doing kind of just factor-based stuff, the, the things that look like smart beta. These are the funds that are doing um, the more machine learning optimization stuff, right? But, but at least what we have seen, both, you know, both in our portfolios and in our back tests is that the machine learning optimization approach appears to beat out the smart beta approach and appears to beat out the cat weighted approach, at least in the markets where th that we would consider inefficient, right? So, so if I just executed this in us large, um, I, I wouldn't make very much money. U.S. large cap, that is, right? So these are highly liquid uh, stocks, well uh, uh, covered. Um, if I executed this in China A shares, right? So, so mainland Chinese stocks, um, I would earn, you know, at least historically, quite a bit of money. Um, so, so, you know, uh, if, if you want to think in information ratios, 
uh, we can generate walk forward back tests. I'll, I, I can talk about that later uh, if you'd like. Uh, that generate information ratios of three, and then in in EM about two, and in US something like 0.6, right? And and then once you start eating away transaction costs and assume the market gets more efficient over time, it's probably even lower than that. Um, so that's where that, that's the sort of quant investing um, that I do, right? The the machine learning base, yes, but feature engineering is really important. It's based on fundamentals. Uh, primarily, there are definitely technical signals in there as well. It's very interesting that you just talked about feature engineering, and that's probably where it gets a little bit more complicated. Um, when we use quant strategies, um, we have a lot of features to consider. So we've got seasonality, we've got pairs, we've got mean universal trend-based, um, we also have dollar-neutral um, pairs. And um, one of the problems, which is probably the huge problem, is the stock markets are more often than not decided by rumors and news. And that is something that, you know, to quantify that, you have to, ha you know, have a really good accuracy on sentiment analysis. Uh, and human language is not as straightforward as um, people think it would. Um, so the accuracy that it's going to give you doesn't actually always translate into signals that are useful. So talk mm -hmm. a little bit about, before we actually go in deep into the machine learning and neural networks, talk to us a little bit about are there any methods to make sure that all these um, strategies um, will be able to give us signals that can be used um, in the market to um, gain an alpha that beats the market? So it, it depends on your prediction horizon. If you're predicting on a very short basis, right? So, you know, you're in the high frequency space. You don't need to think about fundamentals, right? That, that's like sort of irrelevant to, to the game. If you're predicting at a one month or longer horizon, um, you should, you know, when you're doing feature engineering, you should always think, how does this feed in to the value of the firm, right? So the, the we've actually sort of developed a, a theory uh, uh, here, um, where we are predicting uh, return on, well, it's technically return on net operating assets, but but let's say return on equity. It it's, um, gets at the same idea. So uh, we, we predict return on equity. Um, and if a signal predicts return on equity after controlling for some straightforward variables like historical return on equity, like book to market ratio, like the market capitalization of the firm. If adding um, that variable is able to, to help prediction of return on equity, then that seems like a good signal. And you wanna be kind of overweighting it in the direction of its prediction of return on equity. Now you might say, well, why is that, right? So, so why do we kind of go back to this fundamental um, uh, part of, of the market um, or, or, or of companies, right? It's not even about the market. It's about, you know, the, the fundamentals of firms. Um, it's because, you know, like you said, uh, markets are noisy, right? So, so you know, on, on a day-to-day -day basis, uh, prices will move one way or the other. And, and so when you build your quant algorithm that's predicting on a uh, monthly basis, you don't expect to get every stock right all of the time. Um, even in, in your back test, right? Um, and, and, and so what, what you see is, you know, out of sample R squares of just a few percent. 
Now, in that space, if, if that's you know your, your extent of predicting returns, you want to anchor to something fundamental because you don't want your model to be misled. And, and the, the thing to anchor to is the value of the firm. The value of the firm is equal to its discounted future cash flows. Let me try to predict its future cash flows or earnings in, in our, our model that we're using. Um, and, and that will help us choose which features to include. Interestingly, um, we can add a feature because all, all of our prediction, which, you know, I, I'm, I'm sure everyone already does this, right? And, and everyone who's implementing ML. Um, because we're predicting out of sample, it could be the case that we add a feature that predicts earnings, right? Um, that then doesn't predict return well enough and actually reduces our backtested return. That's fine. That's our new backtest. Our backtest is a little bit worse now than it was before. If you don't take that approach and you're only including things that improve your backtest of return, then you're going to have a data snoop backtest. Then you're going to have a backtest that becomes unmoored from the underlying economics. Um, and you can run into a problem where you are heavily overfit. Works well in a backtest. You run it in the live portfolio. It doesn't work that well. Um, we're going to be getting back to backtesting a little bit more. But right now, I want you to tell us a little bit about inherent biases that people have. So one of those, um, you talked a little bit about that, Murray, uh, survivorship bias, um, the kind of data that um, we wish um, we would have used, but we actually hadn't. And that was actually a useful one. Expand a little bit upon uh, what that is. Oh, so, you know, you can have survivorship bias in your data itself, where, for example, if you had only firms that um, survived, you know, you're, you only have firms that currently exist in 2021, and you run your back test on firms that only exist in 2021. Well, that includes, that excludes, I'm sorry, a lot of firms that went bankrupt, right? So you wouldn't have pets.com, you wouldn't have WorldCom, you wouldn't have Enron. And so there are a lot of things that you would bet on in your uh, back test. Just that, to interrupt you, uh, are, right. isn't that data um, available through um, SEC um, for analysis or is it totally taken off? No, no, no. It's You can definitely get their uh, Edgar filings, or I'm, I'm sorry, their, I, I, sh I should be, I shouldn't use uh, language like that. It's it's uh, too obscure. So so you, you can get their annual reports and, and so on um, through the SEC. Um, but, you know, it, many websites won't have stock returns for all stock. So I, you know, if you were like, using, let's say, Yahoo Finance or something like that to, to pull returns, uh, you would run into um, survivorship uh, bias issues. Now, if, if you use, you know, WorldScope Datastream or Chris CompuStat, uh, you would be okay there, right? You, you, you know, I mean, they, they, they don't have survivorship uh, bias in their uh, stock returns. So um, at, at least, you know, in, in the, certainly the past 20, uh, to 30 year sample. Um, so, it, you know, you, you definitely want to run a back test there, but, but there's another type of um, survivorship bias that I, I think you, you may be getting at, which is where we only see the people who have done well, right? So, so 
yes, it's true. If you go on Wall Street bets, some people will post really large losses, right? And be like, wow, look how much money I lost. Um, but often they're posting huge gains. And, you know, in general, when you, you hear about the great fund managers, you hear about the ones that have done, uh, uh, you know, you hear about the ones that have done very well. Occasionally you hear about ones that have blown up, but you rarely hear about the guys who just kind of dribbled down into nothing, right? Um, so you end up viewing the world in, in a way that, wow, you know, I, I can do it. You know, the, this guy uh, bought out of the money call options on GameStop in September 2019 and became a multimillionaire. Um, that's uh, something that not, you know, not everyone can do, right? Not everyone can either be that lucky or that prescient. Um, so that's where a lot of um, like psychological bias comes in. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure which survivorship bias you were, you were referring to there. I, I guess was talking to, to later. Yeah. Okay, okay, got it, got it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, what's really fascinating for me is the fact that um, how we can leverage the power of uh, machine learning and uh, neural networks to be able to you know, feed all this data from different streams um, into an algorithm and it tells us um, the basic one. But one of the methodological issues that I can think of um, and has been reported by a lot of users um, is how much weight should, it, should you give to a certain information um, relative to the other one. For example, we just talked about seasonality in pairs um, sure. and trend versus reversal base. Um, and in the end, it is um, upon the fund manager to decide uh, which he should prioritize or let go. Um, and that also uh, comes um, at a cost of um, what algorithms can achieve. Um, I've recently been uh, looking at the Encantopia open source tool uh, designed in Python, um, which gives uh, some of the quantitative tools to retail investors. Um, and what they don't tell people is that in the end, there always is a need for a fund manager. So how much automation can we actually get out of this uh, whole investing uh, process? Um, I'm going to be talking later about um, Ernie Chen also, but let's you know, get your um, view on this one also. Yeah, you know, I, I think there's more automation possible than um, than was suggested there, so to speak. So, um, you know, at, at the extreme, if you're on the high frequency side, you know, there's no person executing anything. It's it's all done algorithmically. The the data is coming in. Your, uh, per, you know, the the predictions of, of returns are are happening on the fly, and and trades are are being executed. Um, even on the the monthly horizon, yes, it's absolutely true that there are humans, um, you know, doing careful feature engineering. Um, but you know, once you get the expected returns, I mean, you certainly examine them to make sure that everything is okay. But uh, you know, you, you you execute on the optimized portfolios. As far as the you know, when you are dealing with different strategies, and I think that's what you're getting at. Hey, you have this pairs trading strategy, you have this trend following strategy. Um, so that's not how I implement personally. So I have expected returns for underlying security. So to aggregate them is actually fairly straightforward, right? It's just a, an optimization. Um, if you have multiple strategies, um, one way to deal with that is to generate expected returns for the strategies and then uh, do the optimization on that level. But 
without generating expected returns and a covariance matrix or other forms of risk, the act of aggregating in, indeed does become a human act. Um, and in general, it, it's not that you want to avoid that. It, you know, humans are irrational, but we're not. Uh, you know, when it comes to like aggregating strategies, we equally weight a bunch of strategies. I, I think you're probably okay if they all have uh, positive uh, expected return or, or figuring out some sort of heuristic sharp ratio weighting. Um, but you know, I uh, if you have a large enough cross section. It is better to take the expected return approach, in my estimation. Um, it also be, kind because, of assumes right. the fact that uh, markets are going to be the bull markets and they're going to perform as they have already um, have in near history or let's say long term history. I mean, we don't actually take in the amount of variance that can actually happen in a market from the um, disruptions that are totally unforeseeable. Talk about COVID-19. So what do sure. you do when you calculate expected returns um, for a diverse portfolio? Yeah, so so it's a good point that, that there are these um, unexpected shocks that can affect them, or even expected shocks, right? It could, it could just be an expected shock that isn't accounted for in the model. Um, so, so there are these shocks that can uh, impact the market and the prediction in a way that the model fails to capture. Now, if we're living on the high frequency trading side, these extremely volatile environments are fantastic, right? So um, COVID, you know, as far as high frequency trading firms were concerned, you know, COVID-19, um, the uh, 2008 uh, crash, those were high profit periods, right? So that's when they earned a lot of money, both on when, when the market went down and when the market went up, um, where they fail to make money, or not fail to make money, when they make significantly less money is when the market is flat, right? And, and it's not really doing anything. Um, there's less very short-term um, predictability there. Um, as far as these sort of more medium-term models that uh, are actually trying to capture firm valuation, yes, that you know when, when a shock happens, they will miss information. Um, but some of the technical signals end up manifesting uh, this information, right? So, so, and and eventually the the fundamentals will also manifest the, the information, but that, but that's obviously farther down the road. Um, so, you know, one and right. So, so, so one signal that you could use is investor flows, right? So, so. You you can rely on other smart money flows. So in in China that would be uh, foreign institutional flows or um, just just foreign flows in general, northbound connect flows, or the the larger institutional flows within China. So all of those are considered smart money flows, um, and that's where you can capture uh, information that may be predictable, but the average, you know, model just relying on pure fundamentals would fail to predict. Um, so, so relying on smart money means relying on other folks insight, right? And another thing you can do is use analyst forecasts, right? The, these are signals that are somewhat resilient to predictable shocks, right? That as, as long as the 
there's a uh, stock that's either you know somewhat predictable or at the very least you know it, it happens and it takes a while to, to fully manifest in the market you can you can rely on other smart people to to kind of uh, uh, piggyback off of their insights um, so so the, you know the, that's a way to build these sort of resilient signals these signals that are uh, not not fully protected against regime shifts, but far more protected than just say looking at value or profitability. Someone like you, who has a very strong grasp on the market and has been there for decades, um, I was just wondering what's your take on um, some of seasoned investors' uh, view about tech stock. Buffett said that he's not going to touch tech stock with a ten feet pole. And I'm just wondering, what are the more reliable industries that people can count on uh, if they're investing their money? Well, I, I mean, you know, if I were, uh, so, so I, I wouldn't pick industries as a um, kind of retail investor, right? I, I would just buy the 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 ETF that includes tech stocks and everything else as well, right? I wouldn't I wouldn't explicitly bet on or against. So, for example, uh, I mean, let, right. let's assume that you know you have a free will, and um, you think of yourself as someone smart, and you know you have the option. Uh, and now, I'm, mm -hmm. I mean, you're in a position right now that you know even if you were to doing uh, retail investing, you'd probably make smarter choices. Um, so, personally, the, the, some stocks are probably more reliable than others. Tech mm -hmm. stocks, you know, it can either be a hit or a miss. So, what's your take? I mean, are you more towards FMCG um, well, or? Well, yeah, I, I so 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 it's an interesting question, right? The, 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 because I, I think you're raising something uh, powerful, I would say, and and I think it's it's worthwhile to understand. So, I, I'm a quant investor, right? I've been in the industry for 15 years. One would assume I'd be better at picking stocks than the average person that you pull off the street. I don't think that's true, right? I, I suspect if you put me head to head. And, 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 you know, I, I didn't have any of my quant tools and I just had to read financial reports and, and say, hey, you know, I think the stock's going to go up. And, and I just had to compete with someone, just so, someone off the street. I don't think I'd do any better. I'm, 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 a, I'm a quant investor. I just don't, I, I you know, I, I know how to predict returns in aggregate. If somebody said, pick a stock, I would say, I'll pick the broadest base ETF and hold on to that, but I'm not going to pick a stock. Um, so, you, you know, it, it, it's not, how, how would I say this? So I, I think somebody once asked uh, Daniel Kahneman, right? Who's um, a, a behavioral, um, he's, he's not a behavioral economist. I'm sorry. He's a psychologist, right? But, but, but he's, he's been extremely influential on uh, behavioral economics. Um, somebody asked him, uh, so, you know, you know so much about um, psychological biases. Um, so, so you must be much more rational and, and able to kind of see through your own biases. And he said, no, I, uh, you know, that's the nature of biases, right? I, I, I understand that it is, it is a thing. I, I, I I'm able to uh, notice that these biases exist, but I, I can't fight them. Right in a similar way, you know, I'm I'm able to capture these excess returns based on the irrational behaviors of investors, 
But if I went in being a retail investor, I would be an irrational retail investor, right? It, I would be making those same mistakes. My algorithm would probably be trading against me. Um, I was just wondering, isn't Daniel Kahneman the one who got Nobel Prize for his behavioral economics? Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah. I remember actually reading uh, some of his work. It's very interesting. You know, people kind of downplay the importance of uh, behavioral economics. Um, and people think it's just uh, sheer numbers, but it's not that. Um, let's talk a little bit about your uh, life in COVID-19. How does a normal day for a coin investor looks like? Um, Stanford published a Stanford uh, article on Zoom fatigue. Uh, do you also have this um, tick fatigue? We know when you look at the screen for a longer yeah. time. Yeah, th that's a so so certainly tech fatigue. So I, my I've had eye strain issues when looking at a screen for like twelve hours, and I've I've gotten better about it. I've been using you know uh, I had well lit backgrounds at nighttime. I I go into dark mode, all that other stuff. Um, so you know I I've been mitigating the eye eye strain there. Um, but, uh, you know, in general, as a quant, you're not having a lot of meetings, you're doing a lot of research. So you're sitting in front of your computer a lot. You do, and, and this is true, even pre COVID-19, um, interestingly, I think our productivity as a group has gone up since, uh, we've been quarantined. Right. And, and so, you know, but before we would all come into a single area and, and work, but it's very easy to get distracted, right? I mean, you, you're just, you know, you're, you're trying to, right? I mean, you know, you're, you're trying to code up some algorithm, whatever it is, right? Um, and and you just hear like the clicking of keys, and you're like, God, I can't, you know, I, I just can't get to where I need to mentally, right? Um, whereas now, you know, you can work in pure silence, um, and and I, I think uh, the group's productivity has has gone up quite a bit. Um, so, you know, I, I, I think it, it's an accidental experiment, but it's, it's been a really cool and, um, productive one in, in, in that sense. Right. So, you, you know, pr practically on, on a day-to-day -day basis, regardless of, um, uh, one's, uh, you know, pre COVID or not the, the, the day of, of quant looks something like, you know, you, you have your, your stand-up meeting. Um, Though the, we actually have it at the end of the day because we have folks in China, but th th that's neither here nor there, right? So, so you know, you have your stand-up meeting uh, at the, at the beginning of the day. Um, you discuss um, what you're going to do that day, what obstacles you have, so on and so forth. If anything, if you, if you need something from anyone, you just say, "Hey, hey, look, I'm in need X, Y, Z. Can you make sure to do it?" Um, we, you know, all all the researchers go through that. Um, we can do a variety of things, right? So if we're doing uh, signal research, feature engineering, um, we'll be uh, maybe pulling data, cleaning the data, examining the data, seeing if the economic, if, if the data is economically intuitive, um, and, and then trying to trying to build the, the right feature out of that, that uh, data. Um, if we're predicting returns and, and trying to kind of improve the model, uh, we might be doing some uh, hyperparameter tuning. Well, I mean, you, it, that's the same as as any other machine learning project, right? So, so you're kind of uh, testing different models, adjusting hyperparameters, so on and so forth. Um, Do you think um, four week, uh, four day week, or six hour um, 
week is going to work uh, on Wall Street also because the research is very clear that you know it increases your productivity. Yeah, yeah. I well, um, it's it's not abundantly clear, but but it, there's definitely evidence. Or oh, in Scandinavia, for, it's been yeah. experimented. Yeah, yeah, but but I mean, the 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 question is like, has it sort of worked in in every run or or an aggregate? I actually I don't know, but I I do agree that the idea is conceptually enticing for a simple reason: you cannot do extremely difficult things for twelve hours straight. If you're working twelve, and it is absolutely true, I've had twelve hour days. After hour six, I am getting very little done. Right. Um, well, maybe not six, but at, at least after hour eight, right? I'm I'm pretty drained, um, and and you know that's where bugs get introduced. That's where um, you know you're you're sitting at at the screen, looking at that cursor, sitting there, and and not really uh, uh, making any any progress. Um, so, you know, in in cognitively demanding tasks. Um, especially tasks that are just nonstop cognitively demanding. So, so you know, quant research is just, you know, the, there are rarely times where you're doing something rote. Um, yeah, I, I could see it. I could totally see I mean, a world uh, where it's six-hour days. We had this assumption that in Silicon Valley that, you know, it wouldn't work if people are not uh, under one roof and nine to five. Uh, but certainly since we uh, went to quarantine, people started working from home and productivity actually increased. So it's probably it's more of a, a mental schema that we have developed that, you know, people have to be in office from nine to five working in hours um, mm. is probably the um, upright thing to do. But maybe it's not. Um, and let's talk this uprightness uh, back to uh, one of the dichotomy that has uh, bugged a lot of people. Uh, um, Elizabeth Warren is outspoken um, critic of um, corporate um, America. Um, then we have uh, a plan of introducing taxes um, for businesses. And that's a lifelong dichotomy between retail um, and institutional um, investors. And I was just wondering, why is that, um, that an investment that should technically be open to everyone does not give retail investors the same platform and that it does to institutional investment. Right. Oh, oh, well, I, I, th I think you're, you're talking about it to two different things there, right? One is about um, introducing taxes into uh, the, uh, basically increasing tax on, on rich people and, and so on and so forth, and certainly getting rid of the tax breaks for- Yeah, but the reason uh, I'm asking is that right. uh, not, not the tax increase itself, but tax yeah. increase because they believe that these companies are not treating um, people fairly. Because if they were peeping, yeah. treating them fairly, there would be no issue of increasing taxes or, you know. Uh, well, I, I, I would actually disagree there. So so the, the reason why you want wealth redistribution is due to the marginal utility of consumption. So so the, the, that's a, um, oh, well, I, I think it's worthwhile to explain this, right? So. Um, if you have uh, whatever your your income's ten thousand dollars a year, right? So so increasing your income to twenty thousand dollars a year uh, has a significant benefit. If you're making a million dollars a year, increasing it to uh, um, uh, you know a, a million ten thousand um, dollars is not going to have that much benefit, right? So so that's uh, the rationale behind wealth redistribution, right? It, it's not about 
I, I mean, I think they pose it in terms of fairness. And and indeed, you know, that that's how politicians always talk about, right? Paying your What do you think about universal basic income then? Uh, it is likely a good idea given the evidence that I've seen on it. Um, but I don't, you know, I, I, I'm not willing to just come out and say, yes, universal basic income, let's definitely do it. I, I think we can, God, I mean, the, the only way to run an empirical test is to do it in aggregate. Um, but, you know, we, we could pass it for a year, fund it with um, value-added tax, right? This is Andrew Yang's, um, Andrew Yang, I'm sorry, Andrew Yang's idea. Um, They're very interested in Finland, by the way. Um, some people think it's a success, some other people think it isn't. And you know, I'm really interesting, uh, interested in exploring more um, how it can actually benefit because in a society like Scandinavia, you know, everyone is pretty much cared for um, healthcare and education mm -hmm. and everything else. In more capitalistic societies um, like US itself, uh, how would that actually play out? Is it going to boost the innovation or is it going to increase the uh, freeloading um, tendencies of people? What right. do you think? Well, the, the, the most freeloading occurs where you have a benefit only if you don't work, right? So, or, you know, th that's where you will get actual freeloading. If you are getting money no matter what, it doesn't actually generate freeloading, it, you know, unless someone's very happy with $12,000 um, a year, which some people might be. Um, but, but on average, people would just say, look, I, I'm going to work a little bit more on top of that, right? Um, and I, I mean, not, not even a little bit more. I mean, people would just probably work roughly as much. Um, but we'll see, right? Um, and also, it would replace a lot of the other uh, programs that rely on people not working or not having as high of an income. So if you have, um, you, you know, if you have disability payments, but if and only if you don't um, work, um, or you can't work, then that creates a disincentive to work, right? And and so the the better way to do that is just to provide the money anyway, and you know, hey, you can you can go back to work if 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 you'd like as well. Um, so so you know th that's the benefit of UBI, right? That that it doesn't actually create a disincentive to to work, and and so it could uh, replace programs that kind of structurally have freeloading built in. Um, right. I, I mean, I, yeah. I think that's the ultimate game. Yeah, I think that probably would invoke, invoke a lot of uh, McCarthyism in um, US, uh, certainly in debates. But let's move on to another interesting topic. About well, I, well yeah, you know, McCarthyism was rooting out communists, right? I mean, that's the, the, this is well, it very, doesn't take very, very long. It, it doesn't take very long to connect um, UBI to socialism and again, then to communism. I mean, oh, uh, people can well, always I mean, blow things out of proportion, right? right? Uh, so, so UBI is a tough one, right? Because it's been advocated by some, uh, I don't want to call them right-wing economists, but, but certainly very capitalist uh, uh, economists have, have been saying, look, let's just replace all of this, uh, all of these kind of welfare programs and stuff with UBI. Um, that, you know, it, it won't create a disincentive to work and it will provide people at, at the bottom, a pretty strong safety net. 
Um, so, you, you know, being, uh, you, you know, capitalism and UBI, there, there's no, um, you, you know, the, the, those things are perfectly compatible with each other. Um, Why? They're, they're, they can, why hasn't it been applied so far in the history of capitalist economies? Then, um, well, it's it hasn't been applied very many places. Period. Right. I, I mean, you know, it's been applied in, in Alaska. Well, well, I, I mean, you know, it it, it requires uh, accumulating sufficient funds at at the government level to. to oh, you can always argue you you don't have enough funds. Um. Yeah. Yeah. But but. You know, the, that's where the sort of redistribution comes into play, right? You have to get the money from, from somewhere. And hence, we have McCarthyism also, because, you know, then people would, you know, say people don't want to actually help right. poor people. Given but, but I, I mean, but, but, you know, we, we ought to keep in mind, McCarthyism was because of geopolitical, and, and you know, I'm, I'm not saying McCarthyism was a, was a good thing. I'm just saying, think about the environment there, right? That there is a, uh, a military power that, you know, a large military power that your adversaries with, and you know these folks out of um, either delusion or uh, uh, you know some sort of malicious uh, uh, kind of um, desires for for power or whatever. Um, they were able to paint um, the you know folks within within the their country within the United States as uh, uh, communists, right? So. You know, without that sort of um, uh, external geopolitical threat, right? You you can't have a, a McCarthy. You can't have McCarthyism, right? I mean, I mean, nobody's going to get that worked up about UBI in a let's kind of bring these people in in front of, um, uh, you know, let's let's bring An Andrew Yang in front of uh, uh, Congress and and call him a traitor. Um, that is, you know, it's, it, it, you know, th that's just not not how I I would expect a debate about UBI to play out. Um, now, now people might accuse um, these folks of being, um, you know, promoting freeloading of, of um, you know, uh, basically, you know, causing slower economic growth. Um, it, you know, it is needs to be empirically tested whether that actually plays out, um, but. You know, I I don't think we need to worry about a new era of McCarthyism. That's that. Fair enough. We can agree on that. Uh, let's okay. move on to quant investing um, for retail investors. That's been a huge buzz um, in the market for people um, who are very confident about their programming skills and their clairvoyance um, mm -hmm. to be able to earn profits. Um, and Ernest Chang, huge name in quant investing, wrote a book about quantitative training, uh, trading, and he talks about the fact that. Um, you know, it doesn't really take, I mean, you've briefly talked about the fact that um, it doesn't really take a PhD to be able to understand basic principles of um, trading. It doesn't also apply to current mm -hmm. training also. If you know the basics, would you be able to crack it as a retail investor? Yeah, yeah, I mean, you certainly don't need a PhD in finance. Um, you know, it definitely, you know, if, if you had a PhD in computer science or, uh, you know, machine learning, um, why well, I guess I, th I think it would be a PhD in statistics, right? With the focus on machine learning, uh, it depends on the program, right? But but um, you know that would probably help more. Um, but certainly a PhD in finance, if if you you know I happen to have a PhD in finance, but it doesn't help me as a quant investor. It just it's completely orthogonal. It's it's just a nice piece of paper. 
Um, so, you, you know, if, if, you know, if, if you're thinking of becoming a, a quant investor, that's your goal. Don't get a PhD in finance. That's for damn sure. Uh, you, you know, you, you want to, you definitely want to learn about, about markets, about what predicts the market. Um, probably a, a master's in financial engineering might be appropriate. Um, I, I have one of those. Um, but, uh, you know, if, if you worked for a firm coming in out of undergrad, that was, you know, a, a quant firm, you could probably learn everything you'd need to know in a few years. Um, you could then go off on your own, but God, I, I just, you, you know, you need a lot of capital for it to make sense. Right. Um, it, 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 you know, if you got whatever, a, a million bucks stashed away, that's probably not enough to just say, Hey, look, I'm just going to focus on quant investing and make a ton of money. Like, you know, practically that that's insufficient funds to, to, uh, just have that be your, your game. Um, so, you know, don't, if, if, if one is thinking of doing quant investing on, on your personal funds, you know, unless you have a ton of money, uh, to start with, it's not going to be your, your path to further riches. Uh, unless you've, maybe your algorithms are better than mine, but, but you know, the, the, it's, it's not that sort of, sort of thing. You, you need a, a good chunk of change to start with to, what to, is, for, for the returns to be meaningful. That is. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. We're just wondering what is a PhD good for then? Oh, um, if you want to go into academia, it's, um, it's necessary, right? That's number one. Number two is if you're doing, um, it, this is really, uh, strange to say, but, um, so if you work at a firm where, uh, you need to market your product, right? It's not you just managing your money. It's just good to have a PhD in, in something to be like, Oh, I have a PhD. Right. I, I mean, so, so it, it's, and, and that's indeed the, the type of firm that I work. So, so the, the act of being able to say like, oh yeah, I have a PhD, you know, that's, um, worth something, but like, does it actually help me on a day-to-day -day basis? No, I, I, I don't think so. Um, I think we've had a long, a lot of conversations with uh, fantastic people who have PhDs on my show. And one of the themes that emerges, um, time and time again, is the fact that how ridiculous this piece of paper has become, um, for example, Think of the fact that you have worked in uh, Wall Street and you know other positions, VPs, directors, CEOs. Um, they have worked their lifetime um, understanding a topic, um, having significant accomplishments. They don't have a PhD, uh, sure. even though they have done things. Uh, they they're, they cannot get a PhD technically for that. And people yeah. right out of, out from undergraduate, they worked four or five years, done nothing of significant importance, only wrote papers, you know, yeah, yeah, theoretical yeah. book, you know, I, they have a PhD. Yeah, Isn't yeah, it like, yeah. Right. I mean, what does it tell you about education system? Well, well I, would, I mean, I, I wouldn't, so, so just keep in mind, a PhD doesn't mean an expert on the field in general, an expert on application. What does it mean, actually? It, sure, it, 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 it's, it's referring to an expertise in a particular uh, a topic, and it might just be an academic topic that's not at all interesting to. Um, Why are we asking them to teach our children who don't know anything practical? No, no yeah, that, that's an interesting question, right? Why don't we separate the act of research and teaching, right? So, so it does make sense for PhDs to teach uh, 
other PhDs and even other people who are teaching, right? Because you, there are things on the cutting edge that are perfectly applicable that are coming from PhDs, right? Th that's true in every field, right? Um, so th th there, and, and it's more true in other fields, right? So if, if you're going into, um, God, um, developing pharmaceuticals. Now, I, God, I actually don't know. I, I imagine the MDs and the PhDs are uh, dominating that. I mean, it's for example, um, you right. have your master's degree in financial engineering, right? Yeah. Who would you expect um, to teach you better? Um, a guy who has a PhD who has done, uh, who hasn't done a single day of work in engineering department or someone who is a VP of engineering department who is very good at finance? Well, right. I mean, it, it would be right. I mean, you know, like maybe a, a VP in a, a financial, you know, firm that does financial engineering. But, but yeah, I, I, I get you there. Um, and indeed, they, they do have those folks come in and, and, and talk, right? Um, but, you know, I, I agree that those folks would teach you more practical knowledge. Uh, they're, the foundational things, practically, the professors are pretty good at that, right? Now, you know, why in particular? Um, Being professors of dyslexia. How do you assume that, you know, they can teach it better? I mean, and a graduate student can probably do a very good job uh, right after the oh, college. Oh, I mean, so graduate students often do teach, but honestly, uh, I would call that a mixed bag, right? I, I mean, you know, I, I, we, we've all, I, maybe, I, I assume we've all had graduate student, student uh, professors and they can be great and they can be uh, bad. I actually think the volatility is greater among graduate students in terms of uh, quality, the standard deviation of quality is probably greater among graduate students than among professors. Um, but, uh, you, you know, I, I do, I, well, well, let me kind of get at this, this idea that, that I do. I think what I'm trying to get is, I mean, let's talk about the solution instead. I mean, instead of, you know, sure. I'm moaning about things I was thinking, and I think there, there's already a trend in, at least in Australia, I believe that, you know, you have something called a PhD based on your working experience. Um, and I think that would give a lot of people uh, incentive for the kind of work or the effort that they put in a lifetime career and stability. I, I, I don't, I don't know. I, I, I don't know about that. I, so the, the, the specific thing that, that PhDs are presumably good at is research in a particular field, right? And if you're not um, doing research in that field, field um, and trying to push the field forward, then it doesn't, right? So certainly like a CEO, right? Like it doesn't make sense for that, for that person to have a PhD, right? That, that, that person is not doing research to push a, a given field uh, forward. So, so I, I would at the very least, you know, want to subset the, the, uh, the, the folks that got this sort of whatever honorary PhD or whatever it might be. Um, but uh you know, I, I think solutions are actually more on the, the teaching versus um, research front, right? So the, mm -hmm. the, the act of separating teacher, you know, the, you know this person is, and, and they might have a PhD, they might not, but, you know, this person is an excellent teacher, um, you know, they're going to focus on teaching. This person is an excellent researcher, they're going to focus on research. And the, the question then is, well, how do you bridge that gap? Um, well, the the excellent researcher, you know, who's discovering these new things, you know, perhaps he can have a seminar for, for these, uh, you know, 
professors, perhaps he can, who, you know, who are actually teaching, perhaps um, uh, he'll be teaching these other graduate students uh, that are uh, coming up and, and they'll go on to teach uh, uh, folks how to, how to, how to do things. So, you know, I, I know, um, you know, and plenty of, uh, uh, schools do this, right. They'll, they'll have, um, uh, you know, teachers who are teaching and, and they'll also have some, some professors who, who do, uh, uh, research as well. Now I, you know, the folks who focus on teaching, they're incentivized to teach. If they're bad teachers, they'll be fired. The folks who are doing research, and teaching, they're incentivized to do research. And, you know, that's why their teaching often suffers. The way to fix it, in my mind, is to uh, separate those tasks, right? I, I think that'll do it. We don't need to give PhDs to other people, right? But, let, but let's talk numbers here. Um, right. You said, you know, PhD is someone who is narrowed down on a specific topic and, you know, has expertise in that. How many students do actually need that? Only if you're in a PhD or in, if you're in a very advanced research and degree, that's where you actually need that. Most of the people who are studying foundational courses are trying to learn the trick of the trades and undergraduates, lots of vocational colleges and schools. All they need is practical knowledge. And where does it come from? It comes from people who are practically doing that and broader doing that. It's not like they're specialized in one area. So yeah, right. So I, I mean, I by, that. by that logic, we need a lot less PhDs than a lot more PhDs. Yeah, well, I, I mean, what you would do there is you would, um, so, 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 so let's imagine that that was a game, right? So, so how, how would we approach that, um, that model, right? So, so after um, high school, you would go to uh, apprentice somewhere and, and, you know, you, you, you would have this sort of apprenticeship approach where, where you don't necessarily um, need to go to school. Um, but th that being said, there, there's some foundational knowledge that ends up being useful. So, for example, even though I don't, um, you know, if, if somebody came came to me and was like, "Hey, can you teach me uh, linear algebra and differential equations?" I would be pretty garbage at that. Whereas, you know, a professor at a uh, uh, university would be good at that. But if I didn't know linear algebra and, and differential equations, um, I'd be, I, I, I wouldn't be horrible at my job, but I would definitely run into a lot of things where I'd be like, wait, what does that mean? Well, why is it that way? You know, I, I, you know, I would run into too many issues. Actually, no, I, I would be horrible at my job. I, I think I can say that fairly uh, confidently. So the, the, you, can that, you can learn linear algebra for two months on your job. No, sure, absolutely, right. So, so you could just say, look, let's just go online and 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 learn this thing. And and so you know, the, this is the argument that, hey, school is largely credentialing; it's largely a signal, right? It, it's it's not an, an a very expensive useful. one. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. Um, and 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 so the, the argument there would be, hey, look, just use Coursera and stuff like that. Um, and I think that that's probably a fine idea. It requires some testing. Right, so so we need to empirically test that model and and see whether it works. But you know what I wouldn't do is to just make the change right now and just hope for the best. You know, say look, we basically don't need colleges or whatever. Right, I, I mean, if 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 we move to that model, uh, uh, in one fell swoop, like I can, you know, you can virtually guarantee something that there's going to be bad, uh, 
uh, negative externalities to that. Um, uh, well, the model's working pretty good for tech industries, actually. Google, Microsoft, and Facebook is slashed their degree requirements. But let's move on to Coursera, actually. I'm glad you brought it up. It went on IPO recently. Um, yeah. And uh, if I were to give you a million dollars today, uh, how much are you going to put that on Coursera? Well, <laughs> you know, I, I would, again, put it all on ETS. But but I can talk about Coursera itself. But, um, but you know, I, it's not like I've, I've sat around and examined the stock because I'm not a, a fundamental analyst. But I, you know, Coursera is just such an amazing uh, a tool, right? So, you know, you'll, you'll wonder, you know, how do I do X, Y, Z? Or, oh, I forgot to take this class in college and I realized it was super important. Well, you know, you go on there, you, 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 you can learn pretty well um, in, you know, for literally a hundredth of the cost that it would, you know, be going to, uh, going to a university, maybe not a hundredth you know, at, at, at 20th. Um, so that is, is amazing, obviously. And, and I, I think um, I'm, I'm sure almost everyone listening here has taken some Coursera course, some, you know, edX course, some online course of some sort, right? And, you know, if you haven't, you know, definitely encourage it. The one thing I would say is this, uh, almost every course is way easier than it would be in real life. And, and you end up learning less if you just follow the prompt. So, so just to give an example, right? So, so you know, you're doing uh, one of these machine learning courses, whatever. Um, so in, in real life, they wouldn't give you like starter code and, and stuff like that and just be like, hey, just put, put three lines of code here. They'd just be like, hey, go do this. You know, it's due next week. Right. And you just need a, you know, you have the data you need to, to get to this outcome. You wouldn't even know if it's right. You're comparing with your friends and stuff like that. Um, that's, uh, you know, you, you should actually go out and try to do the hard thing. Right. So, so edX, or I'm sorry, well, all these things, Coursera edX, they try to make it easy for the students, right? They, they don't want students to get frustrated and leave, but do the frustrating hard thing. Right, you just you know, I, it takes more discipline. But say, look, okay, you know, I, I've done the fill in the line thing. Now let me just try to build it from scratch. Um, and because that's what you, you know, in general, you have to do. Yes, you can pull some code from from here and there. You can pull this repository from from GitHub. But but practically, you want to know how to set up the model. Uh, from Let's talk about um, speaking of hard, um, something that you're very good at. Um, Chinese markets. Sure. <laughs> uh, Chinese stock markets are an enigma for a lot of investors. You know, it yeah. amazes a lot of people. Um, it enrages a lot of people. Mm -hmm. um, and for the rest, uh, it boggles down. Um, yeah. um, it has its up times, for example, um, since uh, late 90s. Um, it has grown 2,000% um, growth. Um, if you compound it. And um, then it has a remarkable 2015 crash. Yeah. Um, and um, part of the reason is that in 2015, government legislations made it easier for um, retail investors to come in and actually do yes. that. The problem that came along with that is that 67% of those investors um, barely have a high school education. Uh, and that is a recipe of disaster. Chinese government propaganda on defunct stocks um, on TV actually encouraged a lot of people buying into that uh, ploy, that kind of uh, compounded the problem. Mm -hmm. It's all over the place. Tell us what's going on here. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I mean, the the, the market is. Um, in some ways, it's very uh, crazy, if you will. But in other ways, it's very well structured. And I'll kind of describe the various, you know, what the various aspects of that. So, on the one hand, you you do have a market that tends to be more volatile than most, and this has been the case more historically than it has been recently. So, the the, the volatility of the market has, um, you know, since inception to or, or, or I'm, I'm sorry, let's say 2000 to 2060, right? So the annualized volatility is about 30%, whereas in the US would be something like 15%, right? So, so that's actually quite a bit uh, of, of uh, annual volatility. Um, so, you know, it, it's a market that tends to have spikes and crashes. It's, you know, the, the market spirits tend to be a little bit stronger there. Um, there are a lot more frequent regulatory changes um, so that's something you have to kind of keep your ears to the ground about. And sometimes those regulatory changes can be counterproductive, right? So, so a particular example of that is um, they had a, uh, uh, you know, a mechanism by which if the market falls, I believe, more than uh, 5% in a day, um, the, the market is closed for the day. Um, now, the point there is to protect the market from, uh, uh, losses, but almost immediately after it was either five percent or seven percent. After e immediately after uh, it was instituted, the the market fell uh, by uh, that amount, and and it, and it closed, and that happened again. And then they said, "Look, we're we're getting rid of this thing." I mean, the the there's actually a, a rationale for that, right? You you actually don't want these things; they don't st stabilize the market. Um, they, they actually make it them more volatile. So the, these are the sorts of, of things that make the, the market a little bit more disorderly, if you will. There's also a little bit more uh, um, earnings manipulation in, in China, and we can discuss why that is later. But there are other aspects of the market that are much better ordered, right? So um, there is a lot more uh, uh, data releases required uh, for firms. So if you, for example, go from a negative pro profit to a positive profit, you have to release, uh, effectively release your earnings early, similarly from a positive to a negative and, and various other uh, uh, situations, right? So you need to release your earnings a little bit early. You need to ex um, explain what happened. If your uh, market price falls by more than actually a 20% move in, in uh, either direction over the course of 20 days, you need to describe why that happened, maybe quell any rumors um, that that might exist. Sir. Um, there are, so so the exchanges and the um, the, the regulator, the CSRC. So that's basically the Chinese SEC. Um, they uh, will send out uh, letters to firms, and these are public letters asking about their financials, and they do this a lot, right? So you, you might. You know, you might think, well, this might happen every so often, whatever, right? It, but it, it's it's a very frequent occurrence that they're constantly asking firms, like, you know, your your earnings fell quite a bit here. Can you explain why? You're, you know, you said you're going into five G, that you're now, you know, a five G business, but I've seen your R and D uh, actually decline. I would expect it to increase markedly if you're going into this new 
uh, uh, business. So they're asking, what are the yeah. board members? No, no. So, so this is fascinating. There are regulators. Regulators are asking firms these questions in a very public manner. So, the, so, so you might think, why is this, right? So, so why are Chinese regulators so sort of insistent? Let's say that the not only are things reported accurately, which of course the, the, that's sort of demanded from from other countries as well, but that you know, everything is just like very uh, uh, rationally explained, like, could you provide some clarification here or so on and so forth. Most countries regulators just say, look, the investors will figure that out. You know, uh, you know, buyer beware. Good luck, guys. Um, you know, we assume the market's sufficiently uh, efficient. In China, they say, look, they're, they're a little bit more paternalistic. They're, they say, we're, we're going to make sure that, you know, the investors are the least likely to be misled here. And, and they make a, a big effort to um, issue all of this information. Now, what's great is for us as, you know, quant investors or as institutional investors, is we actually have the resources to, to kind of read and digest all of this information, either algorithmically or, or just by picking uh, uh, various bits of information. Um, and that helps us earn excess returns, right? So this is sort of the perfect environment for a quant investor. There's a ton of information uh, being released, um, but it's not something that a retail investor could practically read. Um, it's not a, something a retail investor could practically d digest. So we can utilize all of that information and use it, to, use it to earn excess returns. And you might say, well, to what extent do the specific releases matter versus the um, you know, the, the, the standard releases that exist everywhere else, right? So, you know, I, I mentioned this idea of in, information ratio. So if we just live in standard factor world and, and you know, it, it, it doesn't matter what that means exactly. It's just like a simpler world where information ratios are just going to be lower structurally. So if you use the standard factors that have been discovered in the U.S., you might earn an information ratio one in China um, in, in a backtest. Um, if you use these uh, quant signals built off of China-specific data, you'll earn an information ratio maybe of 1.4. Um, now, you, you know, once you do all the optimizations, you, you can get up to, to three or, or whatever. Um, but the point here is that um, there's more information trapped in these unique aspects of China about expected return. Um, than there are in the kind of global signals. Um, so that's what makes China such a fascinating market, right? That there's so much information out there. And yet, because the market's 80% retail trading, uh, you can capture that information. They're not reading that, but you can. Is it partially the cause of uh, 2015 crash that, you know, um, algorithmic creators or creators like yourself um, are acing it and, you know, people um, barely having an education uh, is probably losing everything that they have? Well, I, okay, well, let's, I, I mean, it, it's not quite that bad, right? Um, you, you know, I, I think uh, is the 2015 crash, I wouldn't describe it as a cause. I would describe it as a symptom of retail trading. Right. And, you know, this sounds, um, what's the word? It, it sounds like almost unsavory, 
right? That that we're because presumably on average the counterparty is the retail trader, right? It's eighty percent retail trade. So so why is this not an unsavory thing to do, right? Because it it's, sounds unsavory, right? You're, you're you're trading against retail investors. Um, we want to bring the market to efficiency. If you bring the market to efficiency, there are two things happen. One is the right firms get capital. Secondly, if you are a retail investor, you you just go in there, you just buy the index, then you're golden, right? And and actually, I would have the same advice for folks within China. You know, if you're a retail investor, why try to, you know, trade up against all these institutions and algorithmic traders and all these other folks, just buy the index. And then, you know what, we're all going to be fighting with each other for alpha, and there's not going to be very much left. Right. Well, when, you know, when institutions have to fight each other for alpha, like there is in, in U.S. large cap, they don't make money. Right. So, so on average, you know, I, I mentioned 90% of mutual funds underperform in, in U.S. large cap over 10 year periods. And you might say, well, maybe they're losing money to hedge funds. No, if you look at hedge funds, you know, once you adjust for market risk for uh, interest rate risk, um, they underperform uh, after fees. Right. So, if you have a bunch of institutions fighting each other for alpha, well, alpha is a zero sum game. So that means that, you know, after fees, they're, they're earning negative, you know, negative excess returns, you know, and, and if the retail investors are just holding the um, index funds, then they're, you know, they're, they're investing in a broadly efficient market because the, the price setters are these um, institutions fighting it out. And they're earning better returns than the institutions, right? Because their fees are lower. Um, so, so that's the way to, to, to beat the institutions, so to speak, right? That, that you know, the, if, if all the retail investors are, are buying um, uh, index funds, like e even in, in China, if that could happen, if, that, if we could manifest that world, then we'd all just be duking it out with each other, uh, uh, trying to scrape whatever little alpha is left uh, in the market. Um, and, and that's the dream in some way, weirdly enough, right? You want to get to a place where the retail investor is doing well. And, and the way to do that is by making the market efficient. Well, Reliance is an um, ETF that's primarily based on um, Chinese stocks. And I was just wondering, uh, do you really have a margin that big? I mean, for example, if I am someone from U.S., Australia, New Zealand, or any English-speaking country, the efficient stock markets, why would I be interested in investing um, a Chinese ETF, especially what I hear all the crash stories and uh, yeah. inefficient policies and regulators coming as if it's your own shop? Right. right well, so I, I don't, I, and I, you know, th this is for compliance reasons. I, I don't want to talk about this in context of the ETF in particular, but I, I'll, I'm talking about it in, in kind of abstract uh, uh, terms here. Um, so why might one want to invest in China Asia's, right? So if you hold EM, you probably already hold a good amount of China in um, Hong Kong and in the US, right? Through China ADRs, right? So um, Alibaba, JD.com, um, uh, these sorts of firms are, are listed as uh, ADRs, NEO, right? Um, within, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm right, listed as ADRs in the, in the US. Uh, within um, Hong Kong, um, you'll, you'll have firms like Tencent um, and also a bunch of large banks. Um, 
uh, listed there, right? And and so you, you know, one probably already has exposure there. Those markets, interestingly, are largely uh, efficient, right? I mean, they're they're not certainly not as inefficient as the onshore market, and that's China A shares, Shanghai and Shenzhen. Um, so you know, why would you want to go into this inefficient market? Well, there are a couple reasons. On the beta side, it's actually much more diversified within China A shares, that is onshore China, than it is in Hong Kong and um, the US. So if one believed that you know tech was the way, I, I just want to buy tech stocks and you know that's the thing that's going to work. And then I get some you know financial stocks in, in Hong Kong and, and that's all I need. Um, then yeah, the, you know, ADRs and, um, uh, you know, the Hong Kong stocks will sort of fit the bill. Um, but if you want like a broad based exposure to the Chinese economy, uh, that would be China, Asia's Shanghai, Shenzhen. Um, but more, you know, our argument would also be, look, it's not just about the beta or I'm, I'm sorry. I want to mention one, one other thing, uh, the correlation between China A shares and the rest of the global market is extremely low. And, and in fact, um, the, this one is, is pretty incredible. So, so I, I think it's, it's worth uh, mentioning. China onshore's correlation with China offshore is roughly the same level as emerging markets correlation is with the US stock market, right? So what does that mean conceptually? It means that you know if you're invested in China offshore and you say, "Look, I'm diversified, right? I, you know, I, I've got, or you know, I, I've got my China exposure," you know, that would be from a return correlation perspective, the rough equivalent of owning the S and P 500 and saying, "Look, I, I've got my EM exposure, right? It's okay. I'm, I'm in the U.S. That's you know, roughly the same thing. Like the 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 China onshore." Um, market it, it just behaves very differently um and and that return correlation that that low return correlation provides incredible diversification so it's such a great diversifier uh in the portfolio um so that's definitely something to consider on the beta side now the alpha side right so you know can you earn excess returns you just want to buy an index or do you want to do something more active Right. So what's the argument for? Well, I mean, well, let me first give the argument for doing something, just doing the index. Right. Well, I, I don't know when the alpha is going to dry up. Maybe the alpha is already gone. I'll just buy the, the index. That'll that'll work eventually. Right. I'll, I'll, I'll get the beta exposure. Right. Um, but, you know, what's what's the alpha case? Well, there are a couple of things. Right. I mentioned that 90 percent of uh, funds in the U.S. and U.S. large cap. Uh, underperform over a over any ten year period. In in China, um, I actually I, I don't know what the percent is, but I know that um, they have outperformed on average, despite having a one point five percent average annual fee. Right, so that's pretty gnarly. Right, so that means that they're outperforming by at least one point five percent on average. Right. Um, then, uh, so so that's mutual funds, but but maybe you know China mutual funds they just they're just really good at investing in the China market, right? They're they're sitting there, they they know what's up. What about foreign investors? How how are they doing? So you can look at 
uh, qualified foreign institutional investors. You can look at Northbound Connect investors investing through uh, Hong Kong. So, so you can do that globally, but you, you just need to execute your, your tr trades using a Hong Kong Connect account. Um, those investors um, outperform. And actually, the Northbound Connect investors outperform markedly, right? So their information ratio is 1.97, at least historically, cross-sectionally. Um, then, um, you know, you might say, well, okay, international investors, but does that mean quant investing works? And I've already discussed, you know, the, the standard quant factors earn an information ratio of one, you know, China-specific quant factors earn 1.41, you know, combine everything together, optimize information ratio close to three in, in uh, uh, China large cap, uh, four in small cap. Um, so the alpha is, and again, back-tested, right? I, I need to keep... Keep mentioning that, right? Those are back-tested information ratios. Um, so, you know, with alpha like that, you know, it's probably probably worth uh, investigating doing something active. Um, so that's why China is interesting, right? And and why it's a compelling market. That yeah, it's a little bit more volatile, but it's a great diversifier. You might even be able to lower your portfolio volatility by increasing your China A exposure. And you can um, earn excess returns through active investing, something you can't do in many other markets. Go ahead, sorry. Well, of course, volatility is probably one of the prereqs for um, higher um, alphas also. Um, but let's zoom out and uh, talk more uh, from a fundamental analysis point of view and not the technical analysis, which is the... Sure. Um, trade relations between U.S. and China, because that certainly is going to boil over to stock markets um, yeah. and uh, future predictions. Um, Alaska Summit um, actually recently um, established the fact that um, Biden is going to hold uh, Trump's uh, trade tariffs, and which is certainly going to um, evoke retaliation. And we're also in the middle of semiconductor and microchip uh, fights. Uh, there have recently been yep. um, talks about uh, the um, shutdown attempts of takeovers and uh, certain percentage of ownership um, in European yep. and U.S. companies from China and vice versa. Uh, yep. And that is probably very dangerous for the kind of collaboration uh, that we're expecting, especially in time to COVID-19. How do you see sure. that play out, uh, especially for your um, EDF and its long-term um, horizon and in general the market? Well, I, you know, I, I think for... I, oh, I sorry. I really can't talk about the ETF. I, I know that that's annoying, but I, it's just some uh, regulatory thing, right? But I can no, talk about what you can do China's is generally how it's actually going to. Play yeah, out. yeah, absolutely, sure, sure. Um, so, I I wish I knew, but I I think there are, the incentive for someone like me is to be very sanguine, right? And and I'll kind of explain that and then talk about why I I think you know being a little bit. Uh, more on the fence may make more sense, right? So, so why might it make sense for me to say, "Oh, look, you know, we're, you know, we're fully economically integrated. Everything's going to work fine, right? Both sides have an economic incentive, you know, to rattle their sabers and then go back to business as usual, right? So, uh, that's the sort of line that someone like you would expect someone like me to take, right? Um, there's another side to things in this case, which is there's geopolitical tensions as well, right? This isn't purely uh, economic, right? The, the, the reasons why, um, you know, countries don't want 
um, you know, Chinese firms sort of building their 5G networks and so on and so forth. That's not about technology. That's not about economics. That's about geopolitical tensions, right? Um, so that's a thing that's more worrisome for me, right? Because from an economic standpoint, it is indeed the case that, you know, if we're trying to maximize GDP, you know, we, we want to get things back to business as usual as soon as possible. Um, if there were, you know, if geopolitical tensions weren't, uh, are a thing, right? Then, then, then suddenly you're, you're worried about, you know, the, the values of, you know, what, Hey, what's, what are going to happen to my allies? Right. So I've got allies out there. What about them? Um, you know, are, are we, you know, are, are we going to be giving away military technology or, or well, technology that can be used in, in military applications, so on and so forth. So, so that suddenly becomes a worry. And that's why I think, uh, this is, you know, we can't just be, uh, blindly optimistic here, right? I, I just, you know, I, of course we all want things to work out, but we can't kind of live in a fantasy world where they, oh, everything's going to be okay. Don't worry about it. You know, just uh, uh, dive in head first and, and hope for the best. Um, we we can't live in that fantasy world, you know, and, um, you know, that that's all I can reasonably say about it, I guess. Yeah, fair enough. And I think there, yeah. there's a lot um, of um, uh, emotional baggage that comes into play also, um, it, in, despite uh, stock markets being uh, pure number of games. But let's talk a little bit about, you know, what stock markets, regardless of where they are doing um, to regulate themselves. Um, U.S. stock market is notorious uh, for our scams. Uh, we have recently seen Archegos uh, go down uh, right. along with that. Well, yeah, the, 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 that's not a scam. It's a, it's a, no, no, it's I, a I'm not right. finished. Right. Okay, okay, go ahead. <laughs> so we're talking okay. about uh, Theranos, um, uh, Elizabeth Holmes, you know, probably one of the largest, um, you yeah. know, um, uh, um, scams um, after Enron. Um, you know, woman was on Forbes cover, you know, rode on the bandwagon yeah. of feminism, you know, technology that didn't even exist. Um, and then we also have, in recent times, Wirecard um, shut down um, um, yeah. in Germany. Um, CEO is um, actually missing an action. Um, CEO is in jail. Okay. Uh, what I'm trying to get at is that what's inherently wrong uh, with stock markets? Are, are they so easy to fool? Uh, is it public sen sentiment? Is it their inherent um, lack of um, self-regulation. Why is that that it's, it's become a magnet for um, such scammers? Well, I, you know, I, I, I want to, because I, I think there are a mix of things in there, right? So um, Theranos was a, was a private firm, right? So, so they, they maybe scammed private equity investors, but- so Listed uh, on I, stock exchange, right? Oh, it, it, is it? I mean, it, it might be, but but I I, I don't think they went public. Billion. Well, I, I mean, you can have a a very high valuation, but but not be publicly listed. Um, so I I don't believe they were, but but I might be wrong about that. Um, but uh, you, you know, Archegos was um, I I can I can talk about th things in turn, right? So um, you know, Archegos was a case. It, it, it wasn't a scam. The guy lost his own money and quite a lot, right? He, uh, you know, took giant leverage positions. And 
you know, normally this works out okay because the banks or the the, the brokers hold uh, sufficient collateral, right, to such that they can liquidate the uh, the the portfolio if it goes down too much. Uh, but they allowed a little bit more leverage than they should have in this case, right? And um, what ended up happening was uh, they, you know, he basically lost everything and and then some, so to speak. And when they sold the, well, when Credit Suisse and Nomura, uh, you know, liquidated their holdings, the, uh, the, the, they actually took, ended up taking losses on their own books, right? It, it ended up being the case that Goldman and Morgan Stanley seemed to sell uh, uh, before, right? So, so the, they, they sold out a little bit quicker. And so they managed to avoid as big of a, of a fall. So, so th you know, th that's not a scam per se. Uh, maybe he kind of scammed the the brokers there, so you know uh, he he kind of convinced them that hey, you know it'll it'll all be okay. But I I wouldn't call that a scam, right? I mean, by it, definition, those, we could apply right. these distinctions for Enron also and easily said that. No, a no, no. That that's you can't. That's a scam. That's a scam. What's right? the I difference? Mean, because they lied, right? I, I mean, well, so, so, so did so everyone they, else. Tyrannos was a huge lie. There was no technology. Yeah, yeah. No, no, I, I, absolutely. But, but that's a, you know, I'm pretty sure it was a private company. But, but again, we can, we can look that up later. It's fine. But um, the, uh, you know, in, in the case of um, uh, Enron, right? So, so what's happening in Enron versus, you know, this guy who took too much leverage. So let's say I am really confident and I just take a ton of leverage and I wipe myself out and then some. Right, so then my my broker has to eat the uh, the losses there. Now I didn't scam my broker. I'm just stupid, right? And and confident. I'm I'm confidently stupid, right? And and so that that's sort of what happened uh, uh, there. Now in in the case of um, Enron, right? They they sort of made up all all these trans the, these sort of self dealing transactions and boosted their revenue tremendously. And uh, kind of stuck that on off balance sheet items. Um, so, you know, th th the question is, how often does that happen? The answer is not often, right? I mean, I, I don't think it happens particularly often. Uh, otherwise, on average, um, stock market return. I mean, if if it definitely happened on average, stock market returns would be something like on average negative, right? Because prices would be uh, so inefficient. Um, you know, there there would be uh, uh, you know firms going bust left, right, and center. Um, but on average, it's you know th these are tail events, right? You hear about them because they're interesting, right? It's not like we have an Enron every day or something like that. That, that would be. Uh, I mean, it's not only Enron. It's about a Nissan. Uh, you know, um, its CEO is probably missing in action. You know, taking refuge in Lebanon. Uh, then we talk about um, a lot of other companies who are doing other things and. Uh, a part of a debate has become uh, pointed towards not the company and the CEO itself, but towards big four. How can you sign off, um, you know, audits of those reports, which is wildly incomprehensible for even a basic undergraduate who understands double bookkeeping? Uh, do you think that a little bit of blame also goes to big four uh, and they're part of, or, or let's say complacent into um, these betting? Um, are they complicit? I doubt it. There's too much to risk, especially after what happened to Arthur Anderson, right? So Arthur Anderson was completely shut down. I think, uh, and, and, you know, some, some part of Arthur Anderson was indeed complicit, though the entire firm wasn't, 
right? So, so some part of Arthur Anderson was complicit with uh, uh, Enron, not everyone, obviously, right? It's a big firm, or it was a big firm. Now it's, it doesn't exist. Um, but that, um, you know, I, I, I think we're, we're, you're looking at things a little bit on what I would describe on the margins and, or not on the margins. You're, you know, the, these things on one tail of the distribution do not describe the whole, right? And it, they, they, you see, you know, we can see things on one side of the distribution and on both sides of the di distribution, I should say. And they seem much more salient because they're so much more interesting. But what is less interesting is a company with boring bookkeeping that, and the, you know, the, uh, uh, the auditor's like, yeah, it's, it's correct. And then that's, that's it, right? Um, so if you were to search for earnings manipulation in the US, it's not like it doesn't exist, but it, it's much harder to find, right? And, and the, the, there are actually ways to kind of detect. Uh, uh, actually, it doesn't even have to be US. For example, in case of Wirecard, what they did was, you know, their mm -hmm. earnings um, in US, you know, it was reported just fine. What was what ended up happening is that their operations in Philippines and Dubai and, you know, um, other countries, mm -hmm. you know, off the grid, they were overblown. And certainly, of course, someone signed them off to be right. And, you know, they would sure. creep into the books. And in the end, because of such a huge scam that, you know, people weren't even expecting, you know, all the services connected with those um, suffered a huge yeah. attack. So it, there certainly are loopholes. And problem is that, you know, if big four is not doing this due diligence, why do they exist? Well, I look, I, I don't think they're, I, I think they're doing due diligence, right? They're, they are on average, uh, you know, doing okay, seemingly, right? If, if on average they were not doing well, we would see uh, much worse outcomes than we are now, right? The, 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 so, so let me give an extreme example. Um, let's say uh, you know you're you start a police force, right? And 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 you 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 say, hey guys, you know it's your job to police the city, and then you know someone dies, right? And someone gets murdered, and and you say, look, uh, you know what were you guys doing? You, you know you're, you're you're the police force. Some somebody somebody was murdered. You know that shouldn't have happened. And, you know, the, the response would be, look, I, I mean, we can't prevent literally every single murder, right, without doing extreme things that, that actually make life unpalatable. Um, so, you know, I, I mean, there are, there are better statistical tools to kind of analyze this and decide whether, you know, we are on average skilled at our jobs. Um, and in a similar way, you, you know, I, I think it, it's, I, I don't know what the, the kind of controlled experiment is where we eliminate the big four and then put them back in right uh, but you know it, just looking at the behavior of of the markets and and you know reading financial reports and so on and so forth i don't get the sense that on average the big four are dropping the ball and i have no i, I don't care about the big four I've, i have no uh um dog in that fight um but you know to, to say that they're, I, I, I never heard that, that idea that they are on average dropping the ball. And I just, I don't think it's, it's, I, I wouldn't agree with that assessment. I don't have evidence of that assessment. I think, you know, a, a few um, firms manipulating earnings and having um, uh, auditors fail to catch it. Uh, 
that's expected, right? I Fair mean, enough. Not I mean, someone's got to yeah. do the job that four, Big Four is doing. You know, if not them, you know, someone else is going to do that. Sure. And then they're going to uh, drop the ball at some point also. But let's move on to something some thing that um, is very uh, inspiring. You work with one of the best minds um, in the industry, Sakhdeep Jason. Um, how's it like to talk, work with such a brilliant mind? You know, he has managed uh, wonderful portfolios um, and um, his work speaks for itself. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, you know, he. I've worked with him for 15 years. I've definitely learned a lot uh, uh, from him. Um, and, you know, I, I think every, if you want to get good at something, it's a pretty good idea to attach yourself to someone who's also good, right? I, or, or, you know, who, who's done it, right? And and so I, I'm lucky enough to to have been able to kind of work with him and uh, gain his insights, right? And he, he, he doesn't just have insights about research and portfolio management, which of course he does, but about the industry as a whole, right? He, he's been in the industry and he, he has, you know, what I describe as sort of clever insights about, you know, how, how the market works, right? The, the importance of analytics and stuff like that. So, you know, um, one thing that he taught me was, look, you can have the best product in the world, if you can't decompose the performance well, um, it's at, at least on the quant side, obviously on the fundamental side, it's a little bit harder to do that. But if, if you can't decompose the performance uh, well, um, it's just not going to sell well, right? People, people are going to look at it and be like, well, why is it working? Is it going to suddenly reverse? If you can, if you can explain why it works and, and do it in a way that's both intuitive and complete, right? Um, that is the the optimal thing, right? That's sort of the holy grail. And, and so that's why we've spent so much effort on, um, you know, good analytics. And actually, I would even say, God, I'm, I'm trying to think, I've I probably spent like something like 20% of my time on, is that true? Probably about 15%, let's say, um, on, on building solid analytics and being able to explain portfolio performance. Um, I, w one of those things that I I wouldn't have expected. I would have just thought, look, you just want to you just want to make higher returns, right? But if 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 you can't explain it, it it just makes people suspicious. Um, so that you know, just insights like that, you know, it, it's it's very uh, uh, you know, you you learn a lot of things like that. And and so you know, in in general, you know, whatever field you're working, if if you want to get good, uh, you know, you know, be the apprentice to the master, and then become the master yourself eventually more than um you know people realize uh, the impact of neural network and black box um algorithms mm. is huge when it comes to um stock investing and i'm sure that you have this problem right in front of you especially when in you put in context of decomposing what's happening inside and then explaining it to investors sure. there is no way out of it um how do you tackle that problem yeah, that, that's a great question. So we, uh, on the monthly horizon, we don't use neural networks. We're, we're actually, I don't want to talk about that. Never mind. But, but you know, on, on a monthly horizon, we, we don't uh, 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 use neural networks. But, you know, we, there's still the issue of, look, you've got a gradient boosting model, a linear ridge model, a, a random forest model. You're using an ensemble of these three things. You're trying to predict returns. Is there some, you know, way you can de decompose the performance? Uh, well, uh, so I, I, you know, I, I feel like the, there's nothing proprietary here. I'm, I'm more than happy to, to talk about it. What we do is we build the expected returns 
of each signal in turn. So we group the signals together. So we have a set of signals we call value, a set of signals we call profitability, a set of signals we call productivity, a set of signals we call low default risk, so on and so forth. Um, we, we group these signals together and we build expected returns using uh, one and then let, let's say value and then value and profitability, then value profitability and accounting conservatism, so on and so forth, right? On, on down the line. And then what we do is we build the portfolios using the, our optimization software. Um, and, uh, you know, build the incremental portfolios. Incremental portfolios is what we call it, right? So we have our value incremental portfolio, our, um, you know, profitability uh, incremental portfolio. That would be profitability minus value, right? The, you, you subtract the portfolio weights and you get the, the incremental changes in the weights. And that allows you to decompose where the performance comes from. Um, and you, so, so the ordering actually matters. You, you need to do some things to, to sort of uh, mitigate the effect of ordering. But that ends up doing a complete job of explaining the returns. And it does it in a fairly intuitive way. So if one of the kind of standard factors does well, let's say gross profitability does well, or, or profitability does well, I should say, then you, you would expect the profitability component to do well. And in general, we find that to be the case. Um, however, of course, it's also capturing all the nonlinear information uh, as well. Otherwise, you wouldn't even do a nonlinear model, right? If, if, if you were just, you know, if you could do a pure linear decomposition, that would mean that you, you actually had a linear model. Um, so th that's how we break things out. And we can actually attribute our, our weights to each of these things. And we can attribute the performance to each of those things. So, so we could say, look, this month we did well because of gross profitability, because of, uh, uh, you know, accounting conservatism, we faced a headwind because of, you know, our productivity signals, so on and so forth. Um, so, so that's the, the uh, idea there. I totally get it. I mean, in, if you're using machine learning models, then probably it's more heuristics, um, hierarchical based decision-making process, which are fairly um, easy to explain, or let's say, you know, for a computer. But you know, if you're using a neural network and you said that you know you're not using it on a monthly um, horizon, let's say, um, it also is probably more useful if you feed it the um, historical data, and in that case, the problem of explainability would arise. Um, in explaining on the log longer horizon, what is going on. Uh, for example, um, if you're using machine learning models that probably would capture really good essence of uh, linear um, relationships, but then um, they're always not, we talked about seasonality before, and that is something that's not a perfect linear relationship. And for that, you probably knew you would you use neural network. And then it's going to become a problem. I mean, for, you understand the concept or phenomenon, what's happening, but then to be able to explain it to um, investors, um, or let's say, uh, the board, um, how did it work out? Well, I, I you know, I, I think with this decomposition methodology, you're, you're capturing both the linear and the nonlinear aspects in each incremental step. So you can point to any given stock, even historically, by the way, you can point to any given stock and say, look, look, we were overweight this stock because of, you know, return on equity and return on net op operating assets. We were underweighted because of this esoteric, you know, technical signal um, and, and so on and so forth. 
Um, so that you know, we have that level of decomposition, and that helps us tell that story. Um, and it, you know, in general, I think it's been successful, right? Because in, in general, uh, you you have two sorts of folks, right? The the folks who have very simple models, um, and you know, they can be linearly explained and it's very straightforward. But you know that just doesn't capture as much information. And then you have the folks who are capturing a lot of information, um, but just can't explain. And you, you know, you, you want to actually have the, the strengths of both where you're capturing all that information, you're able to explain it. And, you know, I, I feel like in the conversations we've had, people have been, uh, people have understood, right? I, you know, the, there haven't been questions of like, well, you know, how does the uh, gradient boosting tree look exactly like nobody cares about that in particular, right? They're, they're, they're looking at, you know, can you attribute that stock's weight? Can you uh, attribute the portfolio's return? Um, and can you do so completely? And, you know, th this method checks all of those boxes. Mm -hmm. I think it's above the pay grade of a lot of retail investors, you know, probably looking for um, returns and not, um, you know, algorithmic explainability. Um, sure. Let's talk about what's your favorite um, book um, when it comes to investing. Um, I certainly like a lot um, this um, Tendo Investor by Manish Babarai. He talks about yeah. uh, Gujarati, um, Indian investment in motels and, you know, yeah. big bets, uh, infrequent bets um, and yeah. safe bets. Uh, and then was certainly um, Warren Buffett's favorite um, intelligent investor by Graham. Mm. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I, I've, I've definitely read uh, the latter, and but, but you know, once you're in the field, you read less books and read more papers, right? And I think that's true of any field, right? Um, and so I, I've been, um, you know, that's been my my game, um, uh, most right now. The the one paper that had sort of the biggest influence. I suppose um, was uh, the uh, geez now now I don't even remember that. I I just know that the authors are Gu Kelly and and uh, Shio, right and and they they wrote a paper on uh, machine learning uh, applications and predicting returns and uh, that struck a chord with me um, obviously right <laughs> so so that ended up being an, an an influential one now their underlying explanations interestingly i really disagree with and that's probably a topic for another time but but um you, you know they, they take a very efficient market view of things and it just i don't know how they square their results with that like it, it's some you know i i would describe it as some impressive sort of mental backflips, so to speak. Now, I mean, obviously, I, I, I mean, I, I'm happy to t talk to them about, about what their what their thoughts are. Obviously, they wouldn't describe it that way. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I had um, uh, trouble kind of uh, understanding where they were coming from there. Uh, but, you know, the, the, the kind of methodological insights there were, were extremely strong. Now, as far as um, books that are just interesting, you know, the, the book on I, I don't even remember the, the the name of the the book but it's a book on on Jim Simons and the medallion fund came out relatively recently um, that was um, and and you know you can use Google you know book on Jim Simons and medallion fund and you'll you'll find it pretty quick um, that was an absolutely fascinating read and you know one thing that is 
one thing that I, I found so great, and b- by the way, the, the medallion fund is a fund that's earned like, uh, I think about 30% excess returns for uh, 30 odd years, right? Um, so not excess returns, 30% returns, right? So that's insane, right? I, I, I think that, uh, you know, you, you don't need to be in the in the uh, uh, finance industry to, to realize just how preposterous of a um, uh, return history that is. Um, but, but the question, you know, it, it talks about like how it happened, so to speak. It's not like giving away algorithms, but it's talking about his mindset and so on and so forth. And, you know, he was a guy who just, you know, he, he, he heard the folks saying, hey, look, markets are mostly efficient, so on and so forth. And he said, uh, I don't think that's true. You know, I, I just, it just doesn't seem to square with reality uh, in, you know, with what I'm seeing, Right. And, and the question is, you know, where do I find those inefficiencies? And he tried various things, and some of them worked, some of them didn't. But he just kept iterating and kept pushing towards automation. And it wasn't just him. Obviously, he had a, a team of folks. And I, I forget who it was who said, look, we just need to go to automated algorithmic. That's what we're doing, you know. Um, I, I, I forget who, who that guy was, but there, there was that guy, right? And... Um, they built this incredible algorithm and obviously have kept improving it over the years. Um, but it just showed the, and it's a right tailed, you know, not everyone can do this, right? These are the, some of the smartest people on the planet. Um, but, you know, the tenacity combined with a ton of intelligence can, can do a lot. Right. And, and, you know, I, I think we also know from long-term capital management, uh, you know, it doesn't just take having a lot of degrees and, and famous names, right? Um, but, but you know, I, I definitely recommend reading probably both of those books, right? So, so the, the book on long-term capital management, the book on uh, Jim Simons, because it shows kind of both sides of that. Well, one being, you know, really smart people blowing themselves up, that's long-term capital management. And the other uh, really smart people executing exceptionally well consistently for 30 years straight um and kind of seeing the dichotomy there you know the necessary humility and willingness to improve and maybe some luck too right i mean it's it's hard to uh to pry it apart you know maybe is there a universe where the medallion fund blows up i don't know but um you know we we, we can't push that out of the, the realm of possibility. Um, stock markets are probably one of the most uh, tense industries you can think of. Um, it's not uncommon of um, people to work 100 hours a week um, in Goldman Sachs. Um, one of those um, um, unfortunate fellow actually committed suicide and that's been reported. Yes. Um, and nothing has changed um, ever since as well. Um, and I'm just wondering, uh, what do you do to unplug um, out of that? Um, yeah, craze. Yeah, right, right. And 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 for for, for anyone thinking of applying here, uh, we don't work hundred hour weeks, so don't worry about that. But but I, you know, it it, it really does depend on on where you work, right? So um, if you're a quant, it it doesn't make sense to work hundred hour weeks for a very uh, uh, specific reason. You're doing extremely intellectually strenuous things. Your, your brain simply won't function after a point, right? So I, I don't know what the uh, 
new neurochemistry of that is, but just, you know, try it, right? So, so try just solving, like, you know, it's, we, we don't sit around and solve, solve different, you know, uh, you know, diff difficult equations or stuff like that. Um, but, you know, just find something very difficult and just do it and then see when you give up, right? It's not going to be 12 hours, right? You, th th there's going to be a point at which your productivity starts suffering uh, tremendously. Um, so, so luckily, we don't have to work those hours. But, you know, we'll, to, to unwind, I, I do a couple things, right? One is I play with my dogs. Um, and the second is I, you know, I, I lift weights. And what's interesting is I've, I've lifted weights for a long time, but I haven't started bulking until very recently. And it's because I misunderstood how important diet was, right? So, you know, I, I'd spent, um, you know, I, I, I spent so long just like going in there, lifting some amount of weight, right? So I, I think my bench was stuck at like 135 or something. And I was like, and I'm, I'm a pretty light guy, right? So I'm like one, uh, 140, right? And I was like, why am I stuck at this weight? Like, I just, I can't get through it. You know, I try like lowering the weight, doing more reps, increasing, you know, doing one rep of something higher, right? But, but why can't I get to like a, a steady state where I'm lifting more? And I, I just started like reading online and stuff and, you know, it, it turns out there, there are three kind of important things. One is that um, you should evenly space protein intake. The second thing is that um, you want to eat protein kind of right after your workout, like within 30 minutes. That tends to help as well. And then the, the, the third thing is that it's not clear that there's an upper bound on protein uh, absorption uh, for muscle growth, right? I mean, obviously there is one. There has to be, right? You 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 can't just keep shoveling uh, protein in, you know, arbitrarily, right? A lot of but, contradictory evidence. For example, yeah. uh, a lot of people mm -hmm. think that there's a four-hour window for protein ingestion. Um, other people think, you know, a lot of protein will actually, you know, um, intercede with your uh, liver function. Um, you know, it might actually end up damaging. It, well, well, uh, I, I've heard of for kidneys, but if and only if you have. Um, kidney problems right so if if you have kidney i some i i don't know some form of kidney disease I, I i'm not a doctor i have no idea what i'm talking about but but i i i do know that um there are some folks who are cannot ingest large amounts of protein because it will affect i think their kidneys right do you also have um, like a specific diet a keto or uh... no nothing like that but but i do have um you know, I, I, I just try to get more, uh, you know, significantly more protein than, than I did before. Right. So, so I'm vegetarian, right. So it makes it extra difficult, but you know, I've, I've started getting into a lot more fake meat, right. So impossible or stuff like that. Um, and then also, you know, protein shakes, all that other jazz. Um, and you know, I, I've actually, you know, I, I said, I was like capped out at 135. Like I'm at 175. Now my weight my body weight hasn't changed that much. I actually gained a ton of weight when I was bulking. I cut back down. Um, but, you know, the, the fact that it took a year and a half to do what it took, you, you know, I, I was capped out for like years, effectively. And it took like a year and a half to like get up to, to that. It, it tells, it says something. I know, it's, I know it's an anecdote, right? But, but it does suggest that, look, 
the the protein intake does it it matters at least a little bit now now I, I mean definitely look at the empirical research right don't look at one person's story right the the empirical evidence is is where where you go for this stuff and there's a lot more now than i i remember looking like 15 years ago or something and i was like god it's just there, there's not enough here to like draw any conclusions and so i just went to a personal trainer he was like ah don't worry too much about diet just focus on lifting um and i just i just took that as as gospel for way too long apparently um, i think it's kind of a culture in the gym you know you take advice from the biggest guy out there yeah yeah right 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 <laughs> absolutely absolutely and then you know it did never works out there you keep <laughs> running at him for months and yeah uh, just never works and i think kind of intuitive also there are also, uh, certainly meta studies um on protein intake and it's relative benefits for example that is the building block uh for your muscles so yeah. more of it of course is going to work out but i think the problem these days is the opposite uh, um you know shedding weight that you don't want yeah is probably yeah. the bigger one well, right i i you know i i think mo- more folks have that issue obviously but it it, it actually makes it rough and so I'm, i'm not i'm geez i i'm it makes it sound like i'm whining but uh, but I'm, i don't mean it to sound like that um so Uh, you know, folks that are small but have trouble gaining weight, right? So, so you know, why does that happen, right? It's it's because you, you're well when you eat more, you're just like moving around more. Like I, I can't sit still. Like even sitting still right now is like very difficult for me. I want to like get up and move around. Um, but uh, and I, I think you've noticed me shifting around in my chair constantly. That that's something I I just can't get rid of. I have to keep moving, right? Um, and there are many people like this, right? Who just they just need to keep moving they it it burns calories it's hard to to gain weight hard to bulk um and there there're less resources out for those folks right i mean it's it's kind of it's not necessarily a less understood phenomenon i mean at the end of the day it's calories in calories out when it comes to weight gain um or weight loss but you know the the sort of psychological aspects of it you know w- when you talk about um uh, losing weight right there there're all these things about like oh keep this food out of the you know vision right don't even buy it don't even let it be you know on your countertop uh you know uh, all all these sorts of um methods but but they they don't have the same thing for weight gaining i mean i guess you could do the same thing but if you're not tempted by a cake right then what is putting the cake out on the counter going to do for you you know what i mean like that's not going to help you gain gain weight if if you're not interested in eating it um so I I you know I I wish there were more um sort of resources out there for like look these are the kind of psychological tricks you use to get enough calories. Um and I'm sure I could I you know maybe I need to be searching better. The, the you, internet's a big place. Do you do you have like apps um what was that calorie counter or something? Yeah yeah, yeah. you know yeah like my fitness pal stuff like my that. My fitness pal. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I I um I use it but it it helps on cutting but weirdly when you're bulking it's actually it it makes eating annoying because you have to go in there and you have to be like okay now i need to put in this calorie amount right so it it weirdly inhibits the amount of food you want to eat because you're 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 adding a cost to it um so and you know when when i'm cutting yeah for sure right um but when i'm bulking um i i i don't you know i i think it's and uh, how's it going on the cardio front Yeah, I I mean I I I run um and you know I I do a mix of like running a couple miles and then I'll I'll s- sprint right for some period of time. Um 
And and that seems to do okay. And and the reason why cardio is important, and I, I think everyone knows this idea already, but I, you know, I, it's probably worth uh, um, mentioning, right? That uh, cognition is affected by one's ability to do cardio, right? So if you're doing aerobic exercise, and um, I think God, now now I don't know, does it specifically need to be cardio, or is just like running a long time good as well? I, I'm not 100 percent sure, but um, that will improve your cognition. And I believe the mechanism is um, the buildup of glycogen, right? So instead of storing uh, energy as fat, or I guess directly as sugar, right, uh, ready to be used, um, there, it increases your glycogen stores. Um, and then that increases one's ability to kind of draw resources to thinking or other activities as well. Yeah, I mean, also there's you know, increased blood oxygen as well. Um, yeah, that's that sounds intuitive to me. I, I so I honestly, I'm I'm really not the person to talk to about this stuff. I, I just don't. I'm, I'm speaking off of it's fine. stuff I'm I've read in, in pop science, right? Right. So, but but you know, just as a disclaimer, like if if there's a doctor out here with you know face palming at what I'm talking about, you know, I, I get it, right? I'm I'm reading this stuff and like, yeah, you know, I, I might read some of it in a medical journal, but in general, I'm getting it from like you know, a pop science thing, like scientific American or something. Mm. Um, so yeah, you, you know, you just, uh, probably do your own research, talk to an actual doctor, talk to an actual uh, yeah. person in the field. So whatever you hear from now on, uh, just take it with a grain of salt. Um, yeah, um, Vivek, it was fantastic talking to you. So much information, um, that's out there and it's very rare that we get to talk to someone who's an actual expert in markets, especially like China. Um, you know, people are downplaying the importance of um, how big it can be. Um, and it's, it's certainly good to know a lot about this. Um, thank you so much for being on the show. Minaj, it was a, a pleasure. I, I appreciate it. Um, everyone else, the show is going to be on Spotify, um, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. Feel free to join our Slack community where we have discussions around the topic and stay tuned for the next week's guest. Thank you so much again.